past is new. The time came when we had to leave Hull and look for work elsewhere. It was one of the problems of the time. Training for young doctors was almost non-existent and there was no continuity within areas. Jobs were not arranged in any rotor or learning experience and places in other hospitals in the whole area could not be intelligently provided because there was nobody to oversee and arrange this kind of integration. These failures in coordinating the use of medical manpower still have echoes today. There is, as far as I know, no really cohesive training programme or course. Hospital posts have to be filled to maintain patient care and this comes of necessity due to the poor or non-existent planning before training requirements. Because of the polio, the fit, and my muscles still being below par, I was chained to hospital work, which is less demanding than working out in the community and carries more support. Hilary was now about two months old and doing well. Being hospital-based, we thought it useful for me to try and get a higher qualification, the MRCP. It was a difficult exam, requiring intensive study, and it was exceptional to pass it first time. It was suggested by my parents that to help achieve this, we stay with them for six months. I was also able to attend the odd courses that were being held in the London teaching hospitals. My parents' home was in Sandersted, and this is where we went. We moved south by train. We did not have much to transport and managed to fit it all into a packing case and suitcases. We arranged with the Hessel station master to load this onto the morning commuter train and he stored some of our luggage for this purpose. Loading was slower than usual and heads were poking out of the train windows to try to understand the delay. We then had to change trains in Hull. A porter came with a flat truck on iron wheels and he loaded this with our stuff to take it to another platform. He set it all up and to Helen's surprise he even took the Moses basket with Hilary in it, plonked her on the top and wheeled her away into the distance. <laughs> we were disconcerted and Helen's motherly instincts were outraged. By this time he was impossible to stop and he shouted that no harm would come to her. <laughs> Fortunately he was right. We eventually got settled into a carriage with tables full of businessmen. The journey was uneventful and Hilary was as quiet as a mouse. Discreet breastfeeding was accompanied by the ostentatious holding up of newspapers. We unloaded in London and one gentleman came up to ask us if the baby was drugged. We have confused memories of this period because it was mixed up with studying, home and very little to evoke clear recollections. I presented myself for the examination but did not pass. We decided not to pursue an examination-dominated life. If you persisted long enough, the exam could be passed, but most candidates needed several attempts. I had to find a job, but at this time there was a surplus of doctors, and each advertised post had 30 to 40 or more applicants. I found places supplied to me by the British medical journal Locum Service and went to various hospitals doing short-term locums. Dozens of us were on the same merry-go-round and began to get to know each other. We found a flat in Highgate on the top floor of a house. Below us lived a plumber and his wife, and the landlord lived on the ground floor. We shared a lavatory where there were three toilet rolls, one for us, one for the plumber, and one for the landlord. The interesting observation to be made was that the landlord's toilet roll never changed size. Our flat had a continuous clothesline operated from a house pulley 
attached from the wall to a tree at the end of the garden. As clothes were pegged on, the line was pulled, sending the clothes into the distance. The procedure was reversed to get the clothes in. Helen soon learned that if not properly pegged, clothes could blow away. The landlord was going to have a holiday in France and so asked us to look after his hens. Our reward was that we could keep the eggs. The first morning when we were fully in charge, Helen gave a shriek and said that she thought all the hens were dead. They were lying in their run with their feet in the air. We were worried that we would be blamed or even looked upon with suspicion by a returning landlord of having eaten them all. Helen said that she was going down to report the whole matter to the police for them to witness the event. A kind elderly sergeant accompanied her back and told her that it was the work of a fox. He said that they came in from Hampstead Heath and he showed us some fox hairs that had robbed off onto the fence. He said that foxes tended to kill everything in sight, probably expecting to be able to return later. He suspected it was a vixen with cubs. Needless to say, the landlord was not amused. Although we never got our eggs, we, along with the plumber's family, could see the irony of the situation. Helen was left a small legacy by an aunt, and she thought we ought to spend it on a second-hand car, of which there was a glut, the petrol shortage and coupons creating a surplus of car owners. We went out into Edmonton to a site where rows and rows of cars were parked in the fields. They were of all sizes and makes, as well of quality and varying degrees of rust. A salesman cottoned on to us, and we began to be shown large limousines with big engines and a lot of chrome. Some were quite tempting, but the man got restless with our indecision and abandoned us. We were helped enormously by a little man who told us what we needed. You don't want any of those big flashy things, he said. They're very expensive to run, and repairs can cost thousands. You need to go for a small, popular car that has reasonable bodywork and tyres. Also, it needs to be clean. I had just passed my driving test and was going to drive us home. As we wandered round, another salesman picked us up. And by now, we had some idea what we should be looking for. He led us over to a black Ford Popular, saying he had been using it for a day or two and it was a good runner. It does use oil, he confided in us, but if you get some Russian oil, which is thick, it will last well. It is a popular model, spares are easy, and it does not need a lot of maintenance. It was about £100, and we had the cash with us, so we struck a bargain with him and found ourselves driving it slowly away over the rough grass. The first fault we found was that we could not get it into reverse, so I had to work out a continuous forward route home. We accepted it as a difficulty, but felt our inexperience was to blame and not the car. We got home and cleaned and polished it, bought the Russian oil and checked the water level in the radiator. We decided we ought to make a long journey in it and visit the Carricks in Hull. The car did not have a heater, so we needed a blanket for Helen. The indicators flagged up from the outside of the door pillar and the spare wheel was fastened to the back of the car with a cover on it. Next morning, off we went. The fact that we still could not reverse did not present a problem. We drove up the Great North Road and stopped for coffee in the George at Stamford. We were slightly put off when a pale and shaken young man came in and told us about a dreadful accident he had just witnessed. 
We pressed on and arrived in Hull, where George and Joyce put us up for a couple of nights. George said he would like a little drive in the car. Compared with us, he was an experienced motorist. And he said to me at the end of his trial, when did you last have the car serviced? Serviced, I said, what is that? He explained and took me round to his garage and booked the car in. He had checked it over, corrected a small oil leak from the sump and the brakes and tyres seemed okay. He said that he had done a lot more than a routine service, so the bill was more. Fair enough, I said, and paid him. It will be a good little car if you look after it properly, he went on. And this is the service schedule for the vehicle. It's a bit dirty, but I found it on the shelf at the back. The car now had a silky gear change, reversed easily and sounded less noisy, and the Russian oil was no longer needed. The journey home was a doddle. After a few days, Helen announced that her sister Mary was coming to London and that we would go to the station in the car to meet her. So off we went. The road we had to go along was made of wooden blocks and was covered in leaves and it had been raining recently. My inexpert gear changing led to the car skidding. I had no experience of this loss of control and we finished up hitting the curb with one of the back wheels, which was damaged and bent. Mary discovered that an old friend, Paddy Henson, lived just by where our accident took place in London. So Helen and Mary went in for coffee and I drove the car gingerly to a Ford garage. The injured wheel must have looked quite a sight. Passers-by kept waving at me and pointing, presumably thinking that I was not aware of the problem. A new wheel was put on, so then I fetched the ladies and took them home. Two days later, we left Mary at the station, having taken her there to pick up her train. At the Tottenham Court Road traffic lights, I had to stop because they were red. They changed to green and I set off. I was still very inexperienced and as it was a busy junction and I did not want to stall, I managed to hit the wing of a large black humber in my enthusiasm to continue. I stopped and the chauffeur got out. He came over and said, it's a council car full of grey councillors. Let us see what damage has been done. There was a dent. Well, lad, he said, not to worry, I can repair that. I thanked him and got on my way. Oddly, my lack of experience, my first faltering steps at driving down busy streets in London and a desire to go wherever was necessary did not make me nervous or doubtful about being able to do it. Helen was a backup and seemed as little phased as I was. Having the car meant that I could apply for jobs without worrying about how I would travel now that I was fully mobile. During the locum phase, a job came up in a sanatorium at Nayland in Suffolk. It meant living in and Helen stayed with my parents in Standerstead during this locum period. One night, the car had a failure in the electrical system, and the headlights went out. This created a problem, as it was very dark, and a cow was wandering on the road. It transpired that I needed a new wiring loom, and the old wiring had to be replaced. When I went to the dealer to buy the replacement, he wanted to know if the car was the deluxe model. Surprisingly, it was. There was not a lot of difficulty in doing car maintenance, so a garage was not necessary, as much of the work to be done was simple and obvious. Electronics or complicated performance monitoring had yet to arrive, and there was still a manual choke lever to pull out to help start from cold. 
Lamps were put under the engine in cold weather to help with cold starts and blankets too were put over the bonnet to help keep the engine warm if the car was in a garage. Meanwhile, I was constantly looking for work. There was a locum registrar post to be filled at St Charles's Hospital Ladbroke Grove and after a few weeks I was appointed, having tenure for a year. It was a general hospital and I was in the medical section. I am afraid that I had little respect for the consultant who was my boss, his standard of work striking me as mediocre. At least I was able to undertake community work in general practice as I could drive. General practice was the fallback dumping ground for all doctors. There was no specialised training course and most of the delivery of care throughout the country was of a poor standard. An article I read by a Dr Collins in The Lancet illustrated this and I wanted to play a part in improving the situation. My first target was to become a trainee practitioner and so I applied for and entered a practice. The problem was to find one of sufficient calibre and there were no guidelines. If a practice joined in the government scheme, it was accepted. The practice I joined was in Wensfield near Wolverhampton. This coincided with the birth of our second child, Felicity Ruth, on 11th of February 1954. I preferred the former name and Helen the latter. But with the perfidy of the fairer sex, our daughter has always been called Ruth. Helen had Ruth in a London nursing home. Ruth was overdue and her hard head left local injuries. Helen also found her back was very painful and the physiotherapist advised her to keep away from stairs. I collected Helen and my mother with Hilary and our new baby and we drove up to Wensfield where there was a house for our use. When we arrived in the evening we found there was no electric light bulb in any room. There was coal, it was cold, but we had no food. Our goods had arrived, including some new furniture that we had had to buy as the new home was unfurnished. Outside the house was a trolley bus stop. We wearily got the bed ready and retired exhausted. We woke in the morning to find we were an object of real interest to all the upstairs passengers of the trolley bus, and we could not get up until it decided to leave. Helen's priority now was curtains for the bedroom. She had them bought and sewn and ready by nightfall. My mother sat on a packing case, busily eating food that I had managed to buy, and we inserted all the light bulbs. The house was arranged so that there was a waiting room and surgery downstairs, and we would occupy the upstairs. The kitchen was downstairs, where there was the bathroom. Our sitting room-to-be had a small bedroom-type fireplace with a grate that we could not get to burn anything. We eventually had a gas fire fitted at our expense. Helen now found herself forced to go up and down stairs. Fortunately, her back got better quite quickly. Was that due to the exercise? Our memories of this period are not very clear. It was a poor area, part of one of the dreadful housing estates that were put up during that period. It was our first introduction to a mixed-race area and Helen made sure that the gollywog was kept away from the hall. We also had a slight problem with patients thinking that our bathroom facilities had been provided for them. I started the surgeries and also did surgeries in other parts of the practice. We got on well with the junior partner, Dr Tyler, but the senior remained remote. He had a very expensive car and that winter there was a lot of snow. He asked me to give an anaesthetic while he did a home forceps delivery, not all that expertly, and then took me part of the way home. 
leaving me to walk through the quite deep snow, even though I was not dressed for the outdoors and had a big bag to carry. The husband of the lady we delivered got to hear of this and was appalled. He appeared unexpectedly at our door with a chicken. Helen put up with all this nobly, but it was one of the least enjoyable periods of our life. In the end, when I was driving along the lane in the ice, a car coming towards me just kept coming and it was impossible to stop with the brakes, so we met head on. The whole of the front of the bonnet had to be replaced. It really did the car a lot of good. Since I had not had any time off, the two partners decided that as I had no car, I could regard myself as being on holiday. As I was nearing the end of the contract, this meant that the post was terminated. We had not been able to arrange a follow-on appointment because there were still the overfilled job applications and general practitioners were overwhelmed by applicants, often not even replying. Fortunately, we were able to go back to my parents in Sandersted. Helen stayed there while I again was out and about doing locums. My sister Joyce rang up to say that a friend of hers had agreed to do a fortnight's locum for a practice in Bradford, but could not honour the agreement. Could I substitute? I could and so drove from London to Bradford the next day. Arriving at the practice during the afternoon, I was not offered any food, just a list of patients that I should go and visit. In the evening, I found myself being left to babysit for the children, who had no idea who I was, nor wanted my attention. I had still had no food, but found a packet of licorice all sorts and demolished them. This behaviour, the medical slavery, was prominent, yet Dr Mincham and his wife were quite reasonable people and we liked them. For we got to know them well later on. The doctor's most annoying habit, for he did not go away but remained in the house, was to go through the day's visits with me. I could not start out before he had done that and he would give very detailed and incomprehensible as well as interminable directions. If only he had just given me a map and let me get started. During the course of the week, he mentioned to me that an elderly doctor, Dr. Kaner, was looking for a potential partner as he had just recovered from a heart attack. He said that he could recommend him and suggested I went to see him. I did so and eventually decided that on balance it would be a good idea to accept the offer he made. It meant that we would be settled and be able to set up our own house. With the oversubscribed places available, there did not seem to be much choice. It was agreed that I would start with him living in the house to be available for emergencies and we could move into a house that we could rent once the telephone was in.